Well, hello there. You are listening to an episode of Den Discussions, in which I, Daniel James Sharp, converse with people I find interesting, and who would answer my email, on subjects that I also find interesting. These conversations are posted semi-regularly on my substack, Daniel's Den, on which, among other things, I also write, and to which, of course, I heartily recommend you subscribe. Anyway, on to today's discussion. Let us begin. Hello, my guest today is Matthew Giagnorio. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, I think you did a fairly good job there, Daniel. Good, good. Uh, Matthew is a Canadian writer and podcaster. He hosts the podcast Modes of Inquiry and is editor-in-chief of A Further Inquiry on Substack. I should say I've been his guest on Modes of Inquiry twice before, so I'm uh, repaying the favour somewhat here. Um, Today, I think we'll just talk a little bit. We'll have a little bit of a freewheeling discussion about various things, but this is your opportunity to talk about your yourself. Uh, you know, your uh, anything else that you'd like to add uh, to my short introduction? You know, your, about yourself, your background, your interests. How how is twenty twenty three treating you so far? Ah, oh, well, hello, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be joining you here. I would say 2023 is off to a great start. You know, um, it transitioned from last year, starting some new projects with uh, transitioning from my Substack, rebranding and transitioning from Matthew's Musings to expanding it to a further inquiry, integrating it more with the podcast. And I'm looking to aim it to be a beacon, another beacon as, as so many are, cur- as a few are currently for free speech, free inquiry, uh, with due diligence of research, of course, but also with special attention to Canadian writers, having a having a base, having a home for Canadian writers, in addition to those in more international writers. Um, I also want to take a special focus within this pub- this publication on interests of national security of of all sorts. My background is largely academically, largely in philosophy, early modern and classical. It's an area which I've really excelled in and really appreciated. I would say of myself, my favorite philosopher that has influenced a lot of how I think about things and arguments I get into with the text are Spinoza. Spinoza has been a massive influence on me and how I view things along with the Stoic writers. But Spinoza has someone I find it's, um, I like to describe his works as cosmic joy. And I think that is not always joy in a, in a jovial sense, but a joy in things are going to play out in a particular way. And there's something pleasing with that when you step back from everything. Okay. As for the podcast, oh sorry, sorry. oh no, sorry, that's quite all right. I was saying as as for the podcast, yeah, it's we're already in season four. Um, as of this as of this Thursday, I have Lawrence Krauss on talking broadly about misconceptions and misunderstandings within science and the relationship between public policy and science. And coming up next week, I have a particularly special guest, someone who I consider to be a, a hero in many ways. Another of many of heroes is Rana Ahmed. And we're having a wide ranging discussion on uh, the, what it means to be an ex-Muslim, her journey from Saudi Arabia to Germany, 
her activism and her own experiences and her her book currently only in, in the german language but hopefully hopefully soon will be in the english language ah fascinating i look forward to that conversation um uh, i'm not exactly sure when this this conversation will be published so <laughs> that time that conversation might be out uh but um anyway regardless of temporal difficulties um when you were talking there about philosophy your interest in philosophy um i was kind of struck by the contrast or if, if it is a contrast i would say it's a contrast between that and your other interests which is in national security right you know, they seem like two very different fields <laughs> so what, what got you interested in, in both of those and, and why right that's that's a very good question Daniel. So it is a question i mean i think I think I'm a walking ambiguity like so many of us, but I think I, I, I just openly embrace it more. My interest with all aspects and all areas pertaining to national security uh, and terrorism, counterterrorism for that matter, really came at a period, I, I would say, of my intellectual coming of age of not thinking everything to be joy, joy in the world was during 9-11, actually, it would, be, it would be that period when I saw things that were going on, as we all did, and it became an interest to me. It became an interest of what's going on in the Middle East, what's going on in these countries, what's going on on the ground, the minorities in the Middle East, the religious minorities, the ethnic minorities. And I wanted to know hard-pressing questions, certainly for a young, young kid. I wanted to know the intricacies, the historical conflicts the problems are ensuing and why they are this way and can things be changed and how can they be changed and i find there's a lot of things often misunderstood or deliberately misrepresented when it comes to matters pertaining to national security um and i i like always reading on these topics but also researching these topics to find where's the political nuance but also where is the political intent and where is the the reality versus the intent what, what's one trying to push versus what, what is what is the reality of the situation and even as a, a recent co-authored paper that phil gursky a, a fellow canadian and former member of CSIS for uh and with 35 years of intelligence in the, in the canadian intelligence community we authored a paper on something that's dear to us is the change in language and how we approach and how we discuss. And for that matter, how we delegate. I may interrupt you there. I just, um, uh, I do have that written down. I want you to talk about that. Ah. Just to go back, uh, get a little bit more personal again. Okay. Uh, in terms of your background. Um, sure. I'm just sure. wondering when you were talking about 9-11 there, um, I was about I would have been five when it happened. I don't really have any, well, actually, I don't have any memories of it. Um, I'm just wondering if you, I mean, do you remember? Yeah. That, yeah. That yeah. Yeah. Uh, I could go into more of that, sure, for you. So I would say for me, I remember vividly where I was that day. It was my, it was our, I think, our generation's Kennedy moment. I was sitting home. I believe I was sick. I was in the front room, TV was on, and I, I first notion thought well, these were special effects for a movie or a promo for a movie or some adver uh, advertisement or trailer of some, some sort. And then quickly realized after the news flashes and 
that this was going on right now. And it, and it stunned me. I didn't know, I don't think there was an actual emotional reaction, right away, but just to be shock and awe, just like what is being, what is occurring before my eyes? And it did have an effect. It, it, it had an effect on me to want to investigate, to want to denigate a portion of my life. And, and in many ways, a large aspect of my studies surrounding questions pertaining to these topics, these hard pressing topics, realizing that it's not about them and us or us and them or but we're all walking ambiguities. We're all a, a mixture of experiences and we're all a mixture of how we react to those experiences that no matter what groups, politically, socially, ethnically, religiously you belong to, at the end of the day, everyone is an individual and you have to treat people as individuals on an individual basis. And it fascinated me with the complexity, even now at 31, the complexity of the things that are persistently going on in the Middle East on the ground and the differences, you know, we, we, we use the term as the Middle East if it's, if it's something. I mean, there are certain traits, but there are regional differences. There are national differences. And I, I always find even currently that always, what always gives me inspiration, what always gets me up, no matter what's going on is our generation. The, those in their twenties, thirties, uh, especially now the women specifically in uh, Iran, the protests uh, in Egypt previously, the protests led by the women. And even in Lebanon, I find that that is a great inspiration to me where certainly at this interval, there is enough is enough is being demonstrated. And I think that's an inspiration to me. And it, and it keeps me fervent in my pursuits to want to lend my support, lend my raising awareness when I can, and whenever I can have discussions with those who are in what I would call the minority of minorities, mm. to talk more about these topics. And it's something that really has, gives me meaning, gives me purpose. Mm. Uh, it goes beyond my temporality, and it goes beyond my, my person. It's something that I think is important the world over. Yeah, well, I think, uh, I mean, I am completely with you on that. Uh, I do think it's important to emphasize the, the, the kind of civil war within Islam, for example. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, that, uh, it's, uh, you know, I mean, there are plenty of Muslims and reformist Muslims and ex-Muslims um, who, you know, are struggling for their rights against their fanatical co-religionists. Uh, so it's not simply a matter of East versus West. Precisely. And that's something I think is not discussed enough in the right circles and not elevated enough in the right conversations. It is certainly a civil war and we have to realize that. And, you know, friends of ours, uh, people who inspired us who are long dead, as Christopher Hitchens noted this long ago, this is, you know, um, as he perfectly said, I think it was an accurate description is fascism with Islamic face. And we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware of these mentalities and these intentions. This because the words are spoken with, um, this because words are wrapped in honey when they're spoken doesn't mean they're all sweet. You know, look to the consequences of these things you want to implement. And I think the, the, one thing we negate always when you want to censor someone, you censor also minorities to speak up against something. You know, freedom of speech to me isn't just my right. 
it's nothing to do with my the pigment of my skin or my place of birth, but I think the greatest value of freedom of, of speech, freedom of expression, the, the right to inquiry and so forth, is it allows those who would otherwise be blockaded, uh, minorities of minorities, those who would otherwise be suppressed and are suppressed to speak up and speak out and raise awareness to us who would otherwise not be informed of the atrocities. And I think at this particular interval, it's up to us to actually listen. We tend not to do that much anymore. We tend to push aside the realities because we don't want to hear it. And I think that's an atrocious thing. I proudly use the moniker of upholding liberalism, where I'm almost becoming to the point where to be ashamed to call myself a liberal. But I'm very uphold the values of liberalism. They brought us to this point. They are international values and they are created in the rest Western world. And that's nothing to be focused on specifically, but we should be proud of that. And we should be proud of the fact that these are not just for us, but they are for everyone. Yeah. These are things that people in all places and all times struggle for. Precisely. Um, I want to go back just to uh, zoom out a bit again, or zoom in, uh, whatever is your preferred uh, <laughs> image there. Um, but you said, it sounds like you're saying that your national security interests uh preceded your interest in philosophy so what made you what interested you in in, in you know going to learn about Spinoza uh when you'd been so affected by 9-11 and its consequences interesting well for me I find that I like to balance what professors and instructors have said to me is a, is a very interesting balance of being a great writer of academic works but also a great poet and I like writing poetry. I think philosophy is poetry with ethics. And for me, Spinoza, like the Stoics, elevates the beautiful, elevates the reality of things, not the pleasant, not the, the whimsical and the romantic, but the reality of certain things. And when I came across his works, I, I you know, it's not something you're going to read and just grasp right away. You're going to probably read a, a paragraph, a sentence multiple times. And the way he uses particular words, I find beautiful. I find beautiful how he, the way in which he uses the word intellect. He doesn't mean it as the way we would describe it today, but he means it as to have a inlet and understanding of, of the mind of, of a God or the mind of the universe, which I think is a very deep concept, which we don't think much about today. You don't have to believe in a, in a, cosmic father or deity of sorts, but I think there's something beautiful in delving deep philosophically, especially in a Spinozian way. And by that, I mean, not in a stoic predetermined kind of way, but there is something deep and beautiful about conceptualizing and realizing that there is a working in the cosmos. There is something. And I think when it comes to that, you can look at the beauty. Um, for me, I look at the beauty of Spinoza as a precursor to the Enlightenment, you know, him, his own journey. I find things that always appeal to me are continuity and connection. And there's a great connection between Spinoza and his Jewishness. Although he was vestigially Jewish, he was not one to be a proponent. He pissed off pretty much everybody um, in his synagogue and his surroundings because he was so consistent and persistent in his views of science. And his views and his work are a segue 
in so many ways to the birth of the Enlightenment, not only the Jewish Enlightenment specific, uh, specifically, but also the, the greater European Enlightenment. So to me, he is a precursor to so many beautiful things that we take for granted. He's like almost the Archimedean point. Mm. Yeah, and of course, there's a continuity going back into the past as well, you know, some of the influences from the 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 great golden age of inquiry in the Muslim world were inspirations on Spinoza. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, even Rushd and, uh, you know, so there's, yeah, there's a nice continuity there through history that I quite like. It's a nice thread. Oh, um, absolutely. I mean, one of my favourite, one of my favourite... Go on. <laughs> oh, one of my favourite Persian philosophers, uh, whose works I think are just whose works i think unfortunately uh for us in the west we only know it in the romantic and perhaps spiritual to some extent if you will are the works of omar khayyam i think they are absolutely beautiful you know he's he's showing that there is a line of dissidence and a line of accountability not and he's using the mode of poetry he's using the mode of philosophy to be an aggravator but to be an inquirer too He's being a dissident in the best possible way against religious authority as well as political authority of his day. And the Rubiat is, you know, is an amazing, long, mm. but beautiful work. And there's a, there's a great line. I think, you know, when people <clears throat> talk about heresy and those who denounce uh, Islam, especially those who are within Islam denouncing it, there's a consistency. There is, there is something to fall back on. There is a line stretching further back from Omar Khayyam. And you will find that there are many writings long after his death that are contributed in a kind of Khayyamian-esque manner that are using his name as a pseudonym. So there is a, there's a great line of this dissidence and, a, and holding of account to those in authority and inquiring into their presumed holier-than-thou powers or insights or interpretations. Yeah, so it's a great, it's a great tradition, and it, obviously it stretches back, far back into history. You know, with uh, even the ancient Indian, you know, even long before Christianity, and I'm not quite sure if it uh, uh, is older than Judaism, but you know, the ancient Indian philosophies, which many of which were uh, explicitly materialist, and right, you can call atheistic. Right, absolutely. I was, I was brought. I mean, I. For obvious reasons, Kayam um, has has Rubiat uh, has been brought to mind lately with the events in Iran, and I think um, there's a, a verse from the Legalien translation, um, which I think sums up the sort of theocratic tyrannies uh, that the people of Iran are fighting against right now, but also which nicely describes such tyrannies wherever they are, or wherever they arise. So you're, but yours, the cold heart and the murderous tongue, the wintry soul that hates to hear a song, the close shut fist, the mean and measuring eye, and all the little poisoned ways of wrong. So uh, beautifully, beautifully said it. The spirit of Omar Khayyam lives lives on. Um, um, I've always enjoyed the passage, the much quoted, but I don't think that ever takes away from the quality and beauty of it. So ardently and simplistically put together, but so poignant in its power is, and thus, lo unto you, you maggot-minded few, 
you say you were given the word and, and denied it me? We'll go on to and believe that. I've always liked that, that bit of the Rubiat. I think it's uh, of the many great passages and quotes one could take from his writings. I think that's very direct. It's very honest. It's very, very direct. It's very, here I am, come at me kind of language. I'm holding you. I'm not falling for these fant fantasies. I'm not falling for these words. I'm not falling for your authority. I'm holding you in account. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't have any familiarity with the original Persian, of course. I'm only familiar with kind of the translations, and there, there are questions over uh, those translations. Um, you know, to what extent, I mean, was Omar Khayyam really such a, an infidel, or was he more of a Sufi mystic? And, uh, you know, different translations have emphasized different interpretations of his actual beliefs. But in any case, uh, the, the beauty of those verses remains undimmed and entirely relevant. Um, going back to the point about uh, coming back to Spinoza, uh, when you were talking about the workings of the universe, uh, it reminded me of, of the sort of Einstein view where he said if uh, he's a Spinozist, uh, he believes in Spinoza's God. Um, and that also brought to mind Hawking, you know, the famous last sentence of a brief history of time uh, for right. which of mind of God. And, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting, I mean, Hawking was uh, an atheist, um, as most likely was Einstein, but they do seem to fall into that pantheistic tradition. And uh, I know it has been said that pantheism is just a sexy word for atheism. Um, how true that is, I, I leave it to others to, <laughs> to, uh, uh, to, to conclude and to think about, but... Um, that's just an observation on, on, on what you were saying. I, I, quite, I just enjoy, uh, I enjoy as much as the next man, that, that lane, that tradition. Right. I, I would say of Spinoza specifically, I, I don't, I think that, you know, that has been said of him, but I think that's an inconsistency. I, I think he's, he himself and his writings are, are, are brutally consistent. You know, he uses the terms nature, substance, and God as to describe in many ways the same thing. You know, many feelings, many notions, many occurrences, many happenings in the world are not otherworldly. And in many ways, you could say that is his primary thing. All these notions, all these feelings from the awe-inspiring feel we get to hear a piece of music, to look at the, the beauty of an artwork created by someone, to hear music that was composed, um, sex, orgasms, the, these things don't happen otherworldly. These things, you know, murderous rage, um, joy and love, all these things, the rustling of leaves, the beauty of a tree, the feel of, of the breeze on your face, all these occurrences, all these feelings, all these reactions happen within nature. They happen to us. They're very human. They're not otherworldly. And in many ways, you could expand that and to say what the frightening thing about the human experience is when it comes to the atrocities and the horrors is it's all too human. Whether one is a horrid creature, the fact, the matter, I think it's very scary, is the fact that that horrid being, their horrid actions are all too human. 
it's a, but it's an element, an aspect, a form of the human we have denounced. We don't like. We don't like atrocities. We don't like murderers. We don't like these individuals. They, they don't pose any benefit to society. But the beauty, even in his way of looking at the universe and you know the mind of God, as you as we as we alluded to, is you see that also being a glimpse into the birth of physics, a glimpse, a further glimpse into the addition to the stories of physics, into the understanding of how things work. And it's it's remarkable to me, it's remarkable at that particular pivotal point. I mean, there has been many scholars who have said, oh, he has a stoic element to him. It's not stoic because he doesn't have any predetermination to his writings. He's very consistent in how he presents his arguments. And it is hard and grueling. It's not the ethics in particular. It's not a, you know, there's the treatise, this political treatise he wrote, but in just in keeping with the ethics, his, his, I would say his magnum opus in many ways, he's immensely consistent. And for a small text, each paragraph, each sentence in, in many ways, you have to read and go over again. You have to have a very keen understanding of language to understand the words he's using in the context in which he's using them. I mean, this is the man who was excommunicated from his synagogue in, of all places, the most liberal, the most free area of all time, of, of his era in the 1600s was the Netherlands. And he was, his works were barred by the Catholic Church. So there is something beautiful about what he's doing. He's, he's testing the waters, but he's also being consistent in his views and in his, in his ability to, for free inquiry, but also his ability to be consistent with the values of science and particularly the knowledge of the day that he's contributing to, that he's discovering, that he's uh, inquiring about. And there's, there's a, something really beautiful about that as being a kind of precursor and a kind of contributor to along the line, but also a father in many ways, a parent, a birth, a parent to what we, the many enlightenments and, and specifically the Jewish enlightenment. That is, is a big period of history, which I particularly love. I, I find it a very fascinating element of history is I believe, I hope I'm saying it right, to though my Jewish listeners, I apologize, my Yiddish and Hebrew is not good whatsoever, is the Hakayana, Hashashana, was the, the Jewish enlightenment. And they particularly chose, I, I think it's very in keeping with the Spinozian element and the, intel, and the intellectual element, whereas other enlightenments took as the symbol, took as the namesake fire, a spark, you know, we use the word light, we use the word enlightenment. In the Jewish enlightenment, they took as a symbol, as their reference point, the mind. And I think there's something very deeply important and very deeply valuable about that. Just as you were talking, again, this uh, is a slight tangent again, but since you mentioned uh, Holland um, and you know the treatment of Spinoza by his synagogue, um, that that puts puts me <clears throat> pardon me puts me in mind of uh, as you say Holland was once a great uh, liberal city uh, sorry country even um, you know where free thinking uh, mostly flourished with some exceptions of course like Spinoza right um, and. That's another tradition, it's a great tradition, but one that has been 
uh, betrayed recently. Um, you know, Holland, uh, you know, with the murder of Theo van Gogh, right. and the attacks on Ayan, her CLE there. Um, you know, the, the, and, you know, the Dutch government's appalling treatment of her CLE. Um, you know, it seems that they've kind of turned their back um, at some level on, on that great enlightenment radical tradition of, of uh, you know, of the, of the, of the times of uh, Spinoza. Um, and I think that's maybe something that when we were discussing uh, events like um, Islamist murders of, of writers and artists and critics, um, perhaps we should try and evoke uh, or invoke um, a bit more history, you know, say, well, actually, we have this great tradition and we are going to stick to it and we're not just going to fold um, because some new religion comes and tries to boss us around. Right. And that's something we should certainly look to do because you see it everywhere these days, uh, the, the folding to, to uh, particular religious uh, dogmas um, and not just religious dogmas, but uh, we don't need to go further afield than that right now. Right. No, I concur with what you're, what you're saying there, Daniel. We, in many ways, are betraying our own values, cutting ourselves off limb by limb. And well, in, in uh, Canada, I, I saw today actually, it just, uh, I just remembered, it just came into mind. Uh, your your uh, prime minister has appointed a, um, a special representative on Islamophobia. <laughs> yeah yeah I don't, I don't know what you make of that <laughs> uh, that's a whole other podcast my dear man <laughs> um i i take the position you know just to be very brief on that i think my my views on on this would be sincerely be a whole podcast is we have the political system in canada for example a parliamentary system we have a liberal party we have a conservative party NDP are equivalent to what you would have uh, labor to some extent equivalent to a Green Party and a Bloc Québécois, which is a provincial separatist party. However, I would ar ac arguably say, and I'd be consistent on this, that the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and his lead helm, his leadership of the Liberal Party is not liberal. It's, it's not the fact that he, it's, people want to insult the, the liberal and say that. I, I, I'm first one to say your, your, your consistency is wrong here. You're not insulting the liberals. The fact the matter of this particular figure is not liberal. There's an inconsistency with the values. There's an inconsistency. It's uh, politics of the trend, politically trendy, but nothing liberal for that matter. And I think that is the problem. Problem, largely and yeah I, I i am not surprised by this i don't think anyone who is who is, resides in canada who follows canadian politics even would be surprised by this current creation there is no one thing you'll find about if you if you do a lot of research even on his track record with um over the years really track record just when he was becoming prime minister the first time and even again, his, the only thing you get would consistent was when it came to, or rather inconsistent in a, in a jocular kind of way, was that when, it, when he's talked about, 
Iran, uh, those voices from in the diaspora who were trying to raise awareness and wanting to get support to denounce that, depending on the crowd in which he spoke, you would get a wide range of positions from first being all in support, all against, somewhere in a gray area kind of position. So there's nothing consistent with what he is presenting. I don't think there's a gloom and doom. He's the worst person in the world or evil, but he's not being consistent with what I would say are liberal values, the values of liberalism, which have no party, which have, the irony is they have no party. And so far as we, they're not party oriented um, values that are liberal values. But what he, he promotes too much of the politically trendy, whatever seems to be popular at the moment, both jargonistically and policy wise. Yeah, I mean, there is um, a massive difference between the label liberal and uh, the actual ideas of of liberalism as a, as a philosophy. Um, I, 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 uh, we've spoken about this before, but uh, oh, for the days of good old Bob Ray, uh, right. who posted right. Salman Rushdie at the time of the fatwa, right. who was the first uh, head of government in the world, I think, to do so. Yes, he was. I believe he that was some more of that Spain. Yes, I believe that was 1993, 1994 in Toronto, Canada. He embra- publicly embraced Salman Rushdie on the streets of Toronto. I don't know. I think he might have been on a, on a parade or something they were doing. It spoke about him. And then, if, you know, if that's not amazing in its own right, he also, if I recall correctly, he also had Salman Rushdie stay at his own, his, his own residence, his own house. Mm-hmm. So that was, yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And, you know, he ha, has taken a shift himself. He was a former NDP most of his life. Um, I, I believe in the latter part, he was liberal in his younger years. And now he's, I think in the early 2000s, he came back to being a part of the Liberal Party. Um, because, I mean, that, and that's also consistent with our, our former discussion on 9-11. I think that, that has had a huge impact, you know, on politics and has a huge on so many things the last 20 years has changed politics um the u.s particularly things have become more conservative-esque in a way and certainly has changed feels of how we once viewed things of how we once perceived things as much on a social element as certainly in a political element it has changed things has more things i wouldn't say for the better we have become consistently devaluing our values and i'm not being um any focusing on any any nation or state i'm saying values that what are pertaining to all of us as human beings first and foremost and you see that often and i think pertaining to national security it's it's a big thing we're in we're consistently trying to be gentle and be appeasement and you see that in policies you see, I mean, I know you see that in, we've talked last time, in the UK and in Scotland in particular. And my, my issue is always, it's not that it's only a focus on us denouncing our values or, or not valuing them enough, but it's also treating other people as if they are inferior. We're, tre- we're still treating other, other people inferior by thinking they can't, for some reason, 
appreciate value or uphold or follow and appreciate these values as we do. So we have to appease them or we have to baby them in a way. That to me is more belittling, more insulting or equally as insulting for that matter as being someone being an outright racist. You're, you're doing it in a very sneaky way. You're treating someone differently, but the, the consequence of this denigration is mutual. You're denigrating someone else and, and an entire perhaps ethnic community, religious community, or cultural community. And then subsequently, you're also denigrating the values in which allow everything to exist in the way in which you, we all, for that matter, like it to, to be. We all, we, if you don't value the rights of the individual, then you're not really valuing much. Well, we're, we're kind of uh, there. We, we kind of came close to coming back to uh, security and, and terrorism. And uh, I do want to talk about the, the, your article with Phil Gursky. Um, but just to go back, uh, to zoom out again, we're getting very cinematic here. Um, <laughs> um, what's, what specifically made you, because um, it's been going for, for a while now, what made you want to begin your podcast and your Substack? Because I think the podcast, Modes of Inquiry, came first, didn't it? Right, right. It, launched in July 1st of 2020. And the interest was in many ways, something I've always enjoyed. I've always enjoyed inquiry, uh, hence the namesake, modes of inquiry. And I always enjoyed different methodology pertaining to it. I don't think, and it comes from really a love of science and a love of the enlightenment, a love of literature that there's different modes, there's different means to it. You know, there is no scientific method. There's scientific methods, plural. And it was, you know, a benefit in many ways of the lockdown here in Canada, here in Ontario. I said to a friend who worked in, who works in radio and broadcast, I said, you know what, I have an idea. What do you think? And even right to the very last minute, I had changed the name to Modes of Inquiry. To be, I thought that was more consistent in who I was. From a previous name, I thought was more catchy, but in, in hindsight, it really wasn't. And it's everything I like. I love being someone to research ideas, to present ideas, and also to have these deep, wide-ranging, deep dives of conversations. You know, getting to know the quality and substance of someone and the quality and substance, particularly of their thought. I think I'm someone who always appreciated the quote by Voltaire, where he said, judge a man by his questions, not his answers. Well, I hope my questions are uh, up to that exact <laughs> standard. <laughs> they are very astute, Daniel. Um, so, what, so how did the substack come about then? Uh, you know, it started off as your own sort of substack, but you've just recently sort of expanded right. to right. Well, the substack was initially meant to be a kind of a a, a place for my own writings, my own my own thoughts, my own quandaries, my own musings. And its former namesake was Matthew's musings. And I quickly, recently had had been pondering for a while of trying to promote, but also to integrate these two things, my love, of, my love of writing, my love of research, my current project and love of podcasting and presenting ideas 
with my my appreciation of and and proud of being Canadian, corporate all things have Canadian writers have more of a homestead to to get access to. As we have such beautiful publications as Ario and Quillette out there, but there's nothing of that nature housed within Canada. And I thought this might be a, a good project to start up. And a slow a rebranding and expansion to a further inquiry to integrate it more with the brand. I thought it'd be a perfect endeavor. And I've already reached out to friends of mine, such as Phil Gursky, to do write, some writing on national security issues. And other friends to pitch some ideas and it's already already off to a, a good start a good a good um a good segue to what i think is going to grow or i'm sure is going to grow and to be something worthwhile well i do um hope to contribute myself even though i'm not a canadian <laughs> at some point <laughs> um but uh, yeah so that's that's a good a good point to talk about this article then that was published or I don't know if it was pub published on a further inquiry or if it was republished from somebody right. else. But anyway, you're, right. you're an article with Phil Gursky on yes. Uh, yes. Some we were... in nomenclature regarding terrorism in Canada. So I, don't right. know, I enjoyed that article. So if you could give, give us Absolutely. a rundown of that. Absolutely. It, it's an issue, I think, as you alluded to when we spoke, Daniel, that it's not a topic you were aware of. I don't think many outside, certainly within, but especially outside of Canada aren't aware of, is though it is a topic that would be pertinent to Australian readers, because it's an issue that happened in Australia as well, is where policymakers and politicians especially have thought it to of thought it their responsibility to change language pertaining to national security issues, particularly terrorism, and using terms like motivated violent extremism well that's so broad and so dwindled it doesn't mean anything what is that we these it's we use these terms such as terrorism islamic style terrorism christian terrorism buddhist terrorism Sikh terrorism for historic reasons they have meaning they have they have historical reference points as the style as to the styles in which they are but to use such terms as religiously motivated violent extremism or politically motivated violent extremism, what is this? this these, are, these, are, these are terms, these are long-winded terms. In many ways, thought to perhaps, if I was to pose an argument for the opposite side, was to say that they want to make everyone welcomed. I don't want to alienate or feel spoken out against or narrowed out, in which I would say the original terms do none of the sort. The Original terms describe a particular reference point of a, of a particular style of terrorism. And the weird thing is, it has an effect even within not just the academic realm and the political realm, certainly, and how it's described, but it also has a, pro uh, a problem within legal aspects because there's one type of language used in the Canadian legal code of how we define terror. And there's an, and then we're using these terms for national security purposes. And it, it's, a, it's a conflict, an ongoing conflict in really at least the last two decades and perhaps more, maybe I'm being conservative in my estimate, at least the two decades of CSIS. So Canadians, Canada's highest security intelligence community, highest security intelligence agency has informed on many such 
matters pertaining to terrorism, national security, pertaining to China, pertaining to domestic terrorism on certain issues and been very consistent, very accurate in their writings and their reports. And in so many cases, largely for political reasons, um, political leanings, and perhaps wanting to retain votes and wanting to retain constituencies, the governments, no matter what they are, governments of the day have usually for the last two decades have tossed aside very valuable information. And recent changes over the last five to seven years with the Trudeau government has really been detrimental because it really does tie the hands of the person you want to have the most say and the most freedom to describe, to track, to investigate, and to, and to prosecute are the practitioners. And we forget that. We forget the practitioner is not the academic, and the academic is not the practitioner. And vice versa, that the same is for the politician is not the practitioner. And it's something that Phil and I felt very passionate about. The project, as our, as our love of words and languages, is first and foremost. And we thought this was something that needed to be addressed, needed to be talked about, and needed people within Canada and certainly outside of Canada to be more aware of, more aware of what's going on. And as we concluded the article, a direct call out to the Trudeau government to reinstate former normative terms when talking about and when describing acts of terrorism. Because the current ones are just not useful. They're, they're not even appeasing so much as they are void of meaning. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of <clears throat> calling things what they are. And right. uh, if the term Islamic terrorism uh, refers to acts that are inspired by Islam or a particular interpretation of Islam, however minority that may be, uh, then it's a perfectly valid and quite useful way of, of, of phrasing it. Uh, some, some people used to say, you know, back, back in the back in the 1930s, uh, the, the, when the Catholic Church was, uh, shall we just say, had, a, had a, a less than unfriendly relationship with fascism. Right, yes. Uh, many leftists uh, refer to this as, as clerical fascism. Um, so they were calling out something uh, um, that they saw, calling it by its name. Um, that didn't make them uh, bigots against Catholics, just as referring to Islamic terrorism as Islamic terrorism doesn't mean that you're saying anything about um, the vast majority of Muslims as a people. Um, right. The group. Uh, there's, a, there's a world of difference. Right. And that's a huge distinction there. I'm, not, I'm glad you brought that up, Daniel. That's a huge distinction, which, again, we either negate purposely or outrightly forget in these in these very pertinent very critical conversations there is a vast difference between proper accurate criticism just justifiable criticism of a faith of a religion of islam of any of any belief system as opposed to denouncing or insulting someone an individual person who is a muslim that's a very distinctive thing it's you're, you're attacking don't create the ad hominem Create, attack the argument, not the person. Indeed. So um, I wanted to ask, uh, just as we uh, 
move away from uh, terrorism, as it were, or maybe not, depending on, <laughs> on this next question. Um, just as a broad thing, uh, is there anything in the news, in politics or culture um, that has caught your eye recently that you're interested in, that you have anything to say about? And uh, don't, don't feel pressured to say there is something. If no is the answer, then that's perfectly valid as well. But I, I just wanted to ask. Hmm, that's a good question. I not not really illuminating necessarily. I wouldn't say anything particularly sparking my interest. I think there are some persistent things, not necessarily new per se. One I would say persistent matter is the recent election in Italy of the new prime minister follows from an from an article i wrote a paper i wrote i should say an article a paper i wrote several back in i think it was 2018 on historicity and kind of it's kind of paper on hermeneutics historicity and how we interpret events afterwards and what it means what are the what are the meaning of events afterwards and I was looking at how something that I find with my Italian heritage, Italy has never really dealt with, never accurately dealt with. And I do, I find this, I think I can happily say this, not something I take joy in, but never has accurately dealt with on a national scale, the 20 year period, the, the 20 year period as they refer to it, of fascism. And that's consistent with Spain as well. Spain has never actually dealt with it. And I think that, inability to deal with it poses a cross-generational issue of in many ways in Spain as the paper I wrote was this kind of plea for nostalgia this plea for a past which many people in their teens and you know, mid 20s early 30s were, were adoring Franco at some protest when the government wanted to the government wanted to move his remains to his wife from a national monument to being you know not dispose of them but just bring them to a, a gravesite. And you saw people protesting in masses. And this was, to me, not something that people were, because these kids had any joy of fascism or joy of extremism of any sort, but as if they had no, no inkling to the extent of what this meant, to what this was, but they only had this cross-generational nostalgia, perhaps from grandparents and parents, of whatever this meant to them, whatever their experiences were in their isolated experience, perhaps. And then when you move to the same way, when you go back to Italy, for example, there, you see parallels with that. You see that this have never, and you know, Spain having a longer period with Franco, you see with Italy having that 20 year period with Mussolini, that has, has been so, so persistent with their inability to really grapple with it, but rather to toss it aside in favor of so many beautiful things that, you know, the North and the South, Central Italy has to offer historically, culturally. But you see, you know, there's many academics in Italy, many journalists who have, who are direct and saying, you know, we need to deal with this, we need to have, and it's not new by any means, it goes back for decades. Uh, it was even his, some of the poor, some of the poor prosecutions and inability to accurately prosecute members of organized crime in Italy, whether it's mafia specifically or other, other uh, organized 
mafias collectively organized in the north and south, different different families, different styles of mafia in Italy, largely had, had an inability to prosecute, prosecute them and to even track them down accurately in many ways because of the laws that were enacted, that were still on the books for so bloody long by Mussolini and his very inaccurate, very particular, for lack of a better word, way of viewing mafia and all of that pertained to that. And you see that too. You see that how that lasts and how that still is there. And I think that's a problem. I think we have to grapple with that. It's, it, these things happened. Doesn't mean we have to be persistent in them. Doesn't mean we negate them. And anyone who knows me knows that's the word I, this, this is what I'm going to say the sentence I often say is I be an embracer, not a negator. So that's what I, it's what I am most consistent on. Embrace the joys, embrace the sorrows, embrace the wine, embrace the dancing, embrace love, embrace sadness. Don't negate these things, especially your experiences of them. They shape your character and shape you. And on a national scale, they shape you as you what you want to be. But just because a particular events played out in a particular way doesn't mean you have to be stuck with how that is, how that is. You can recreate you can acknowledge and go forward. And I don't think they've fully acknowledged this. This is, as many writers, many journalists have said, this, the issue is they've not acknowledged it, not had a national, rec, rec, not had a national reckoning with what, this, what those 20 years meant mm. for Italy. Yeah, there's a whole, a whole conversation there about historical memory. Um, I'm mm. just sort of comparing it in my head to Germany. Germany has obviously right. had a long, long reckoning with with its past, with its actions, um, on, uh, uh, you know, under the Nazi regime, right. uh, which hasn't really happened in Spain or Italy uh, to the same extent. I mean, Spain, for example, I mean, you know, 36 years of Franco's rule, um, right. and, uh, it just became such an ingrained part of, of life that once it was over, people just thought, we'll just quietly move on. And you can see some of the benefit of that from saying, okay, Franco's dead. Let's not dredge up uh, the past. Let's just quietly move to a system of constitutional monarchy and democracy. Um, but that's meant that there's been no real reckoning. And, and to an extent, uh, there's been a lot of work that's that's changed that in Spain to, to an extent, but still um, nothing like what perhaps there should have been. I do wonder if that's because as you say, in Italy, 20 years, Spain, 36 years. Uh, you know, these lasted uh, quite a long time. You know, that's uh, 20 years. That's you know, pretty much a, gen a generation. Right. You know, whereas the Third Reich lasted uh, 12 years. So right. I wonder if there's a, if there's a, well, if there's a reason there because it wasn't as long-lasting. Um, well, it was easier to look back at that properly. But then well, again, there's also... In, in many ways, uh, much worse uh, than Spanish and Italian fascism. So, yeah, I think, well, yeah, that's actually a good segue into my point. Actually, that, I think it is. I think that 12 year span in Nazi Germany was intense. I mean, that was equivalent to like four decades for, for most other countries and how, how it would have spanned out. It was intense. And I think that's in half, in part. You know, um, Sebastian Hoffner and, and so many other writers have previously decades past have, have pointed out it burned itself out. 
you couldn't, you could not be so persistent. There, there, there could never have been a consistent thousand years, let alone even a bloody 50 years Reich, because this kind of intensity burns itself out very quickly. And I think when you look at Spain, keeping that same notion of that intensity, I think it's the fact that you have those 36 years and a lot of these people are still alive. A lot of people who were contributors, who were participants, who had some sort of affiliation in these acts, in these goings on, I think that's a lot to bear. And it reminds me of something that from the works of Eric Hoffler said about freedom. And it reminds me, both these notions always reminds me of this quote, is that there's what you know and what you don't know and what you don't want to know. And I would add, it's also what you don't want to acknowledge. You don't want to acknowledge, and that's the same thing could be applied to Germany to the extent that they have done a lot, but they also, you know, they've done a lot. I, I, no one can disregard that. But there's also a fear of acknowledgement of what you, a relation, of what you did, what you allowed. You know, these, these were willing executioners. These were willing, willing participants. No one was really at the, you know, you were the minority if you were somebody speaking out. I think what's, what's frightening for us to realize and what's frightening for a lot of people to reckon with is Nazi Germany, Italy, Spain, these dictatorial, autocrat, totalitarian figures, their policies benefited people, and that's frightening. They benefited people at the cost of other people, at the cost of your own individual rights for collective rights. They benefited people in a very atro atrocious way. People benefited from that, not just financially, but they benefited with, with work. The Audubon was built during, was a building plan during Nazi Germany. We forget that, and that's a frightening bit. That's very frightening. It's frightening to reckon with that, that people did benefit and people were actively willing, willingly participating in these actions. And I think that's a hard thing to reckon with, that the free, you know, yeah, something that freedom is, you know, as Hoffler would say, and I think it's probably the most eerie thing to read, and, and it's, you know, it does grip at you at your, at your core, is we love freedom. You know, this, a lot of this conversation has been about, you might say, I, I would say human values, one could say Western values, you know, what have you, is the fact that there is an element of freedom. We love freedom. You know, if you're in the States, they, they, it's their, it's, there is their Bible, freedom. And, and rightly so, freedom is something we should all value. Individual freedoms, personal freedoms, freedom to choose all, all sorts. But with freedom, some, some comes one element that is so critical and so important, yet we never discuss it, is responsibility. Responsibility for the actions you are actively making. And for a lot, that's an intense to, amount to bear. And you can see very quickly on a large scale, not only on an individual scale, but on a large scale, how that denigrates and evolves in many ways into a, into a collection, into a kind of Borg in many ways for my 
Star Trek fans out there, you become one of a tribe. You become one of the group. There is no me, I. It's just a number. Because your re individual responsibility is now taken up. Your burden is the burden of everyone else. And I think we forget that, that with individual freedoms, it becomes individual responsibilities. Well, that's a, that's a whole other in-depth philosophical discussion right there. <laughs> I'll just, uh, on a couple of points there, I, I, when, you went, when you talked about the, the benefits that um, people under totalitarianism received, um, I mean, I'm not sure, I don't think it is in the long term beneficial at all, but you're right that that's part of the appeal. And what immediately came to mind was uh, China. Um, right. you, know, you know, the great leap forward, um, you know, despite all of the suffering and uh, that was caused uh, by that, uh, you know, ultimately uh, brought millions of people out of poverty as the Chinese uh, or the apologists for the Chinese uh, Communist right. Party uh, frequently yeah. like to tell us. Um, and today, uh, maybe not so much, but, you know, China is pretty rich. Um, it's people... According at least to the regime, I uh, would say, you know what, we don't need democracy or liberty. We're quite happy. We are materially, we're, we're affluent. We're materially better off. That's all we care about. So it's a different model of prosperity. Uh, you know, it used to be said that liberal democracy was the road to prosperity as well as freedom. Uh, and now the Chinese are uh, sort of saying, no, 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 no. You can have uh, totalitarianism and genocide. Um, and, and you'll still get prosperity. And I think that's a really interesting challenge uh, that we do have to face up to here in the, in the so-called free world. Um, on the point about uh, the, the, the Third Reich, the intensity of that experience, I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's interesting that part of the reason for that intensity was Hitler himself. Uh, yeah, he frequently said... Um, we have to do this now because I don't have long to live. You know, he always thought he was, he, he, didn't, he didn't have much time left in his lifespan. Uh, so we have to invade Russia now. Um, so part of the intensity of that experience was him, his own fear of his own early death, uh, you know, uh, encouraging him to, to speed up his, his plans and to just go for it, which is... Uh, a pretty scary thought, really, that a leader can, just because of their own psychological hang-ups, uh, uh, do so much uh, destruction. Um, and finally, again, I'm just sort of commenting on what you said here, so. <laughs> um, but uh, I think these are reasonably interesting thoughts. Um, when it comes to historical memory, uh, as we said, uh, Germany has had a long reckoning with its Nazi past in ways that other nations perhaps haven't, um, Spain and Italy in particular. Um, but the other side of that particular coin is that then you become scared of yourself. And I think that's one of the reasons this, sort of, this cultural memory is one of the reasons why Germany has been so so intransigent um, uh, on sending the tanks to Ukraine, for example, because they don't want to, um, you know, be accused of being a warmonger again. Uh, you know, they've had a history with, uh, you know, violence and war, and they don't want to 
uh, to return to that. And I think that cultural memory, that cringe is uh, something that they've been trying to avoid and that perhaps explains some of the reluctance of them to, to send uh, uh, aid to Ukraine. Not that they haven't sent a lot, um, but, uh, but there, ha there have been moments of reluctance on their part. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why. Uh, but that's, that's just a bit of psychoanalysis of the German psyche, if you like. Well, that's a very good point. Daniel, I, I would actually have to agree with you on that. I think that has a lot to do with it, uh, as much from a policy, domestic as much as foreign, but also from, from, a, from a psyche standpoint. I think, I think you're accurate on that. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that Germany has greatly in, implemented into their education system, um, teaching of the atrocity, teaching of the Third Reich, teaching of, of their portion, their, their, what, their, what they did during World War II, teaching of the Holocaust. I think it does. I think the, the fact that the, it's so alive for them in the sense that it's a part of their teaching, that even from someone so, so young to someone much older, they all have a similar, not a, akin, but a very similar in-depth understanding of that. And especially it would be more intensified, certainly for someone who was in their advanced in their age. But I think you're right. I think it has this element of this cultural memory is so deeply ingrained because of their leading role in, in everything that, that occurred. And to your point on China, I think you're, you're accurately right on this. I think there is, is, I had a great guest, which I have to boast him because he's a fellow Canadian and uh, I do appreciate his work. Um, he did teach at my uni, is Charles Burton, who was on Modes of Inquiry. And we did have this talk on China and his work, he was a former diplomat, Canadian diplomat to China. And he did the portion of his education there in the seventies. And he talked about how much, how much it has changed even from then, from this point, even the eighties where we thought, Hey, it's going, we're going to democratize it through trade. And that didn't work. That didn't work. But this is, I think that's consistent with the history of China. When you look through periods going back to the, I think it was the late 15, early, mid 1600s, when there were missionaries, Jesuit missionaries going over. One in particular, his name was Matteo uh, Ranzini or uh, Matteo, um, I, I, I forget his last name, particularly, but he, he was a Jesuit priest uh, who went over there to bring them into the fold, uh, Catholicism, but also bring them into the fold of a more western way of being and the irony the the absolute historic historical and hysterical irony was the fact he was the one who was brought into their fold by the whole thing so there is something about that that i think is very powerful you can look at china today and i think it's easy for someone just to call it as so many times you hear in the american press uh particularly from the the american right is calling it a communist country or a socialist country. I think the irony is that it's actually a hybrid between an intensified, nearly archaic type, or probably a, an un, a, a, you know, a, an unsung, but a, a very free in, in type of a type of capitalism and a very intense, restrictive style, a Chinese style of. Socialism with Chinese characteristics. Yeah, precisely. And I think that's, I mean, the, the, the parting happened long ago. 
when China and the Soviet Union had a decoupling happened long ago. And I think they've gone their own way ever since then. They've done the Chinese way. They've gone their thing. And I think the reality is, if you look at it, you know, don't, one doesn't have, to be, doesn't have to be a Marxist, one doesn't have to be a conservative or liberal. If you look at the works of, of Marx and then you compare it to the way China has evolved economically, politically, it's a joke. It's an absolute hysterical joke. These, these are most of the, I might say, permanent party members in many ways. Aside from the fact that most 98% of them, 99% of them are all male, they're all billionaires, many of them if not multimillionaires in US dollars. It's, it's, it's a laughable. These are not um, a part of the proletarian. These are, these are a hybrid of the worst of the worst in their system. And yeah, you know, you can't argue it has taken people out of poverty, but at, at, a, at a disgusting cost, there's still many more in China that live below minimum wage, that live in a, in a poverty rich stricken area this is a problem this is a huge problem and we need to well, this is something we have to face currently it's not something we have to wait down the road we have been waiting we've tried everything in the western world through democratic means through uh through trying to bring about a kind of liberalism canada particularly has tried many times over the years through diplomacy the u.s has tried the western world has tried collectively through free trade and the irony is it hasn't worked in many ways, I think the interesting element of how they, you might say, attack or repudiate our attempts is they use our own methodologies against us. And you see that both as politically as much as economically. You see that in many ways when they accuse a certain country of, of something heinous, uh, infringement on their rights or infringement on perhaps due to an ethnic and ethnocentric thing or an economic matter, a political matter, policy matter. And they use our own Western free thinking, liberal, open way of viewing things against us in many ways. They, re they reinterpret it, reconfigure it and flip it on its head. And it's, it's skillful. You have to nod, you know, you have to nod at your foe and acknowledge their skill with that. But you also, we also have to buckle up and realize we can't take that. That is something we have to reckon with right now. Yeah, no, I mean, I think um, <clears throat> aside from anything else, there's, you know, modern Chinese totalitarianism is perhaps the most terrifying form of totalitarianism ever devised. Um, you know, it's, you know, the technology is, is, way beyond anything Orwell could have imagined. It's especially in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. Yeah. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it's horrific. And I think even, it reminds now, even, even though we've, even though in the West, uh, we've, we've kind of woken up to that a little bit. I think we're still, we're still sleeping on it really. And that's not going to do us any good. I concur with you on that, Daniel. And I think in many ways, I mean, as much as I love, on a side note, all the collected works, not just 1984, of Orwell, um, his works collectively, I think, are beautiful, uh, short, long, someone finished works. But I've always thought, in many ways, that we, by I believe it's Eugene Zamantian, is far more accurate um, to how things have spun out yeah. in many ways, and especially with regards to China. I think it is a very accurate book to read, as we, yeah. when you look at that. 
Yeah, well, that was um, Orwell was. I'd read that book. He was uh, he cited that as an inspiration, I believe, for for nineteen eighty four. Yes, yes, he did. Just on on as a as another side note, I remember. Um, <clears throat> I once a few years ago when I was at university, I, I did a little podcast for a university society, and on that podcast, I spoke to um, this uh, hard left guy called Conrad Hamilton. And the podcast was notionally about Jordan Peterson. Um, right. But it turned into a very long debate on China. Uh, this guy was one of those hard left people who, who defend uh, China and the CCP. And uh, I recently discovered that he had uh, done a debate with his fellow socialist, Ben Burgess, who I have my issues with, but who is much more uh, correct on this issue and and various other issues, uh, and uh, and they discussed they debated China uh, should left leftists support China and Conrad Hamilton was um, all for it. Uh, yes, we should support China, um, and I, I think that's it's very dismaying to see people like that who are supposedly um, supposedly socialists. Um, which is a tradition that has a long and noble history of, of opposing totalitarianism and opposing imperialism and uh, to see the degeneration of that, that tradition in the hands of people like Conrad Hamilton uh, dismays me very much. It's a very good point. That's a very good point there. Um, if I could just in, in, intrude there for a second on your on your point there, Daniel, I, said, that's, I think that's a very good point. And it's something that I think very quickly. Um, I think very quickly. Forget we we collectively use the word the left as a, if, it, if it's one entity, but it's it's a mixture of different things, not all and often in opposition to each other. And uh, a great conversation I had with uh, a dear friend, a colleague, uh, a wonderful writer, and a great articulator of ideas. I have to give her that. She's a wonderful articulator of often complex ideas that other people might be too afraid to approach and she really brings it down to where everyone can talk about them she is openly a marxist a uh, fellow canadian though she's been in your neck of the woods for i believe a little over two decades is ashley frawley of swansea university beautiful if anyone has not read her works or is familiar with her works you can certainly view her podcasts interviews and her um uh, her Showtime interviews in the UK on YouTube. Um, wonderful writer, wonderful speaker, and she really is true to being, I think, the original tradition or the ongoing tradition that is, I, I'd like to think in some ways, still there, but we don't see as much on the left. You know, a particular style of critique as we, uh, as we address. She was on an episode of Modes of Inquiry, and we address this particular trendiness with the trendiness of the left, this, that where these young individuals and even individuals who are not really young have no, they may be branding, self-branding themselves as being on the left, but they have no claim to be on the left. If the, at least not the left in which we all would turn to and look to and say, hey, that something good came out of that. Something really valuable came out of that. I may not agree with five things, but I agree with that, that thing or those two things. And she says this is, this, this is an issue. There's an issue with people actually not reading the works uh, maybe listening to poor lecturers, maybe listening to online 
people in their online um, sensationalists, but not actually going to the original works, not actually reading the original works, whether or not, and I don't just mean Marx themselves and Engels, but actually going to further back into a longer back into the Jacobins reading these works and what this, what this means to be on the left, if that's where you feel you, you're, you're being drawn to for some reason. And that is a problem. I think it is a problem where people don't understand these traditions and, and the same thing to Drew, you know, I'm, I'm not going to play left or right here. I think the same is true when it comes to conservatism. I think too many people don't understand what that tradition is, what that means, uh, whether in the, in the Canadian context, which is certainly going to be different from the American and certainly different from the British context. These are traditions. These are traditions. And whether one is, whether one is liberal uh, in a par party sense, um, conservative, NDP, socialist, whatever, where you reside, the country which you reside, should be very proud of the other traditions that came about. They're all a part of your position. The irony is, if you're in opposition to a position other than yours, in a political sense, where you reside, your particular position that led you left, right, center, is due in part, largely, to the positions opposing you. you should take pride in the fact that those things have a tradition in them of themselves. Yeah, I should say that um, <clears throat> Conrad Hamilton uh, is a very um, educated guy and intelligent guy, uh, both in general and on uh, the left in particular, and as a leftist. Um, but just since we're talking about Marx, um, if you haven't read it, I want to recommend uh, a book that I was uh, perusing again recently, mm -hmm. uh, Francis Whedon's uh, biography of, of Marx, which is, uh, is wonderfully written and uh, very insightful and uh, presents Marx as a human being. It's less about the ideology and the philosophy, though there is that, that is certainly in the book, but it's about Marx, the, the man, and he's a very fascinating figure just uh, as, as a human being. Um, he, was a, he was a troublemaker and a an arguer and a drunkard. And uh, if you want to hear more about that, Francis Wien's biography is the best place to, to go. Um, I did also want to say, uh, just before we finish up, that uh, I, do, I do feel, uh, you know, as much as we're talking about uh, China and the Chinese and other such, you know, Germany and the national psyche and all of that, I think we have to be careful there not to be reductionistic about it, uh, as if to say that a country has um, a particular uh, a particular mindset, you know, countries right. are made up of individuals at the end of the day, and there are plenty of individuals who, across all borders, you know, plenty of Chinese people who are pro-democratic uh, and, who, and who want to overthrow the system. So just in case Absolutely. anyone misunderstanding uh, um, what we were saying there, uh, uh, I just want you to emphasize that point. Absolutely. I can, I concur with that, Daniel. Yes. I think, and I think that's actually what we have to raise more awareness of, and we actually have to be on board. We have to support those voices, those ones who are putting their life and limit line. Um, not those just in, in the Western countries who are telling us, Hey, we exist over there too. lend your support. We have to actually listen to these people. We have to listen to the ones who are warning us and who are now saying, hey, look, we warned you. We have to be on those on the on those sides, those individuals, those groups, those movements, those 
collections of individuals, and which is accurately said. Um, every country, every nation, every community is made up of individuals. It's when we stop viewing people as that. I think that's when a lot of negativity is in, is, is certainly going to come about. Yeah. Well, since uh, we've been going for a while, I just uh, I wanted to ask uh, about a further inquiry once more, uh, since it's now an open publication. Uh, who should uh, submit to it and and or pitch to it, and and how how should they go about doing that? Ah, thank you, Daniel. Um, yeah, if if someone has an idea, a draft, or is working on something they they figure might not be might be might be interesting, want to want to work on it. Uh, I said I'm, I'm especially want to elevate this for Canadian writers of all sorts. Um, the email is modes of inquiry at gmail.com for sending your submissions and your drafts pitches. And anywhere between 1,500 words, 10,000 words, uh, with due diligence with regards to research and, and citations. It's open to anyone who is really a, a passionate about a topic and really wants to investigate a topic, who really wants to push themselves intellectually and really wants to have a particular... A particular topic addressed in a way perhaps you might not in by the mainstream. It's also, I would say, for those who truly value freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and for those individuals who, how would I say, for those individuals also who want to perhaps get their first piece published and want to actually see where they are. Um, I, I look over these works myself. Um, yeah, it's it's in its infancy right now, but it's certainly already in, in a good mode of growth yeah. with interest, with come interest. On, come on. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> but yeah, anyone, I would say anyone who really has an idea that they're passionate about, that they really want to address it, they really want to write this uh, this article. That you know, it's something they, they must do, and they want to pitch it and want to see where it's where it's coming from. Uh, I'm I'm having particular interest also in matters pertaining to national security, uh, pol politics, always um, long form journalism, essays and articles, and those who really want to uh, I guess flex their intellectual prowess, and those who are not taking a stance left or right, but more a nuanced stance and not being overtly partisan in their views, um, where it's just where, the, where it ends up being just bashing of the other side. But you have to, but uh, taking a, a nuanced, more certainly humanistic approach to matters and what's beneficial, what's the realities of issues of situations as opposed to taking purely a partisan position. Mm. Well, I'll put the uh, email uh, down below in the show notes as well. Uh, is there anything else you would like to add or anything else that you just want to get off your chest whilst you're here? I would say, Daniel, to you, my friend, and to everyone who's listening to this as I sign off in all my emails and as I put in my many posts are, is to keep well and stay curious.
curiosity is not only the lifeblood of adventure, but it is the starting point, I would say, for everything valuable. But that seems like a great place to end on. So thank you so much for joining me. Daniel, it is always a pleasure, my friend. You keep well and you stay curious. You too, sir. You too.